You've probably heard the expression, the grass is always greener on the other side. I don't know where that comes from originally, but the idea is if you're standing on one side of a fence or maybe a river, for some reason things over on the other side always seem to look better. And it's not just relevant to grass, it applies actually to most things. So a boy or girl might have a room full of toys, but the toy that's most attractive to them always is the toy the other boy or girl is playing with. And it doesn't seem to stop when we grow up. It carries on with cars and houses and gadgets. The one you don't have seems so much better. This is how men who are married to the most beautiful women in the world can still end up cheating on those beautiful women. Because the women they don't have somehow seems more attractive. And as Christians, we are not immune from this kind of outlook. This morning we've thought about harvest. Harvest reminds us of the goodness of our God. It reminds us of his good gifts. But even with such a good God, we can find ourselves looking around and feeling discontented with what we've got. We can get envious of those who don't know God. And as we turn in a moment to our Bibles, that is what we're going to find in our passage this morning. Our passage deals with God's people and the greener looking grass. It's 1 Samuel chapters 7 and 8. If you're using a normal church Bible, that's page 277. And the large print Bibles, it's page 425. This passage deals with ancient Israel. But it's, it's like a mirror that you and I can hold up to our own hearts. If we pay attention to what this passage shows us, it will save us from a lot of heartache in our lives. In the last few weeks, we've been watching Israel go through a tough time. In chapter 4, they were soundly beaten by the Philistines. They lost a battle, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant was taken away from Israel. But then, whenever the Ark was too hot for the Philistines to handle, and it was returned to Israel... Even then, it led to disaster in Israel. Some of the people you may remember from last week, the people of Beth Shemesh decided to look inside the ark, and a load of them died. So at the end of our passage last week, the ark was sent away to a place in Israel called Kiriath-Jearim. It basically went into cold storage there for 20 years. And it seems that during those 20 years, Israel had little or nothing to do with the Lord. And those 20 years were years of misery and oppression for Israel. But as we pick up this morning in the middle of chapter 7, verse 2, halfway through verse 2, we read this. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. 
We're not told what prompted them to turn back to the Lord. Literally, the text says to mourn after the Lord. But something brings about a change. They realize they're lost without the Lord. And at this point, Samuel returns to the picture. Samuel was there in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Then he disappeared during chapters 4, 5, and 6. And that's very significant. Because in chapter 3, God appointed Samuel as his messenger. He is the prophet of the Lord. But until now, Israel hasn't been ready to listen to Samuel. They've been doing things their own way. And it has led to misery. So after 20 plus years of misery, they turn back to God. And that means turning back to Samuel. They're finally ready to listen to him. And look how Samuel reacts to them. Verse 2 told us the Israelites were mourning after the Lord. That probably means they come to Samuel in an emotional state. They're weeping and wailing. Maybe they've torn their clothes and put dust on their heads. They're putting on a great show of Middle Eastern style mourning. But Samuel is not impressed by it. He doesn't immediately assume their repentance is authentic. He doesn't assume it's anything more than just a show. Look at verse 3. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. As far as Samuel is concerned, by itself, wailing and emotional outpouring doesn't amount to anything unless it's accompanied by concrete action. They need to take the other gods they've been serving and get rid of them. What counts is a heart given over completely to God. What counts is a willingness to rid yourself of those other objects of worship. What counts is a willingness to give exclusive loyalty to the true God, Yahweh. We saw last week when the word Lord appears in capitals in our Bibles, it's translating God's personal name, Yahweh. But these verses also mention a couple of the rival gods that Israel has been messing with. Ashtoreth was a female god of the Canaanites, the people who were in the land before the Israelites came along. And Baal was a male Canaanite god. He was often presented as Ashtoreth's husband. And Israel has been giving their adoration and affection to these lifeless, worthless things. So Samuel says, if you're truly turning to the living God, then I'm not really interested so much in your tears. I want to know, are you willing to walk away from that other rubbish? Or do you still want to keep it? Are your hearts still hooked on it? 
The God you're turning to demands exclusive allegiance. And things are no different today. It's not that you and I have to clean up our act before God will accept us. No, that's not the way it is. He accepts us as we are. But it's also true that when we turn to God, we have to be willing to let the other stuff go. As we hold out our hands to him, we have to let the other stuff fall from our grip. We can't keep holding on to any other object of worship. Whether it's material stuff, or pornography, or leisure, or even other people's opinion of us. We can worship that. We can put so much value in other people's praise that it becomes our all-consuming interest. Now I know that by ourselves, those things can have a powerful hold on us. We can't break the hold of those false gods by ourselves. But we have to stop clutching onto them. We have to commit ourselves to the Lord and serving Him only. And then He will break our oppression under those things. And that's how Israel responds to Samuel's challenge. They turn to God in genuine repentance. And so Samuel, God's chosen leader, pleads with God on their behalf. Look at verse 5. Then, this is after they have put away their false gods, Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf. And the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shan. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. In response to Israel's repentance, Samuel calls them all together and he intercedes for them. He acts as their advocate before God. He offers a lamb as a sacrifice to God. And God delivers Israel from their misery. It seems the Philistines have had Israel under the thumb for 20 years. And now they see all of Israel gathering together and they assume it's the start of a rebellion. So they come to crush it. 
But God fights for his people. Remember, the Philistines have suffered before under the heavy hand of Israel's God. So when the Lord sends thunder, the Philistines get spooked. They panic. And Israel is able to take advantage of that panic. We're told the Philistines are routed before the Israelites. And then after the battle, Samuel sets up a monument or a memorial. Maybe something similar to the war memorials that we have in our villages and towns. And Samuel calls it Ebenezer. If you're using the NIV, there's a little footnote at the bottom of the page which tells us that means stone of help. Samuel wants the people to remember this day. The Lord is their deliverer. He's the one who fights for them. He's the one to trust. Samuel says, thus far the Lord has helped us. And I think he's saying more than just the Lord has helped us chase our enemies this far down the road. I'm sure that's part of what he means, but I think he means more than that. Way, way back, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, He adopted them as his special people. He called them his treasured possession. And he entered into a commitment or a covenant with them. They were his people and he was their God. And when Samuel sets up this monument and calls it Ebenezer, I think he's saying to Israel, look how far the Lord has brought you. Remember all the twists and turns in your history. Remember the times it seemed all was lost. But here you are. Despite all your failure and your sin, you are accepted and blessed. You're near to God's heart. You are his treasured possession. Ebenezer, don't forget. And then the final verses of chapter 7, we have a description of the peace and blessing of God's rule. Verse 13, So the Philistines were subdued, and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel, and Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was. And there he also held court for Israel. And he built an altar there to the Lord. Israel is free from oppression, they're free from their bondage, and they have God's word. He speaks to them through his servant Samuel. Samuel travels around Israel and he's described literally as Israel's judge. But today that word is a bit misleading to us. It makes us think of someone who just sits behind a bench and settles legal disputes. Samuel would have done that, but he also did much more. His job was to instruct the people with God's word. He was to help them live as God's people. So instead of using the word judge, 
the NIV calls Samuel Israel's leader. Israel has it good. God is their king. And he has provided a man to lead them under God's rule. Chapter 7 shows us a special, privileged people. And what's true of Israel here is always true of God's people. Whenever we come to him in genuine repentance, not just with tears, but with a commitment to give our whole hearts to him. When we come to him that way, we find God has provided an advocate for us. An advocate that's even better than Samuel. We have Jesus Christ. Samuel offered a lamb. But on the cross, Jesus offered himself as the once for all sacrificial lamb. And by his sacrifice, he turned away God's wrath from us. Today, he's our representative at the Father's side. If we have come to Jesus, then we are blessed. In Christ, he has accepted us. God looks on us as his special people. Through his word, he communicates with us and changes us. We can live with genuine peace in our hearts. Nothing can ever separate us from his love. All of that's true of us. And whenever you and I look back on the twists and turns of our life, we can say, thus far the Lord has helped me. He has led me all the way. He has been with me all the way. We are a special, privileged people. And yet, we can fall into thinking that the grass is greener on the other side. We can begin to envy those who don't know the Lord. That's what happens to Israel. They end up being a special, privileged people who want to be just like everyone else. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. The thing that sets up this situation is the failure of Samuel's sons. They're nasty pieces of work. In fact, they're just like Eli's sons had been. But unlike Eli, Samuel is never held responsible for his son's behavior. 
I think the difference is that Eli's sons worked with their father at Shiloh. We're told Samuel's sons worked 50 miles from their father in Beersheba. So Samuel may not have been aware of what they were doing. But in any case, as leaders, Joel and Abijah are no better than Eli's sons. And the elders of Israel, that's the tribal leaders, use that to justify this request they make. In verse 5, now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Samuel's age and his son's behavior are the excuse here. The real motivation is that Israel wants to be like all the other nations. If it was just about the failure of Samuel's family, Israel could have prayed to God for another godly leader. But actually, Israel wants what everyone else has. They don't want a judge, they want a king. The problem with that is Israel already has a king. God is their king. Over the generations, God has raised up many human leaders for Israel. But God himself has always been their king. That's what God says to Samuel in verse 7. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Now there is another aspect to this. It's that God has always intended to give Israel a human king. It's been part of God's plan from the beginning. God told Israel that back in the book of Deuteronomy. When the time is right, God will give Israel the king he has chosen. He will be a king who rules under God's authority. Just like Samuel led under God's authority. So the problem here is not that Israel wants a human king. It's that they want to be like all the other nations. God's people are the most privileged people on earth. They're a unique people. They're uniquely blessed. But as one writer says, they have grown weary of being unique. They seek conformity and security. We want to be just like everyone else. I'm sure that Israel felt they were missing out. They were the only ones who worshipped a God they couldn't see and touch. Everybody else had gods made of wood and stone. I'm sure Israel felt a bit odd. They couldn't carry their God around. And they don't have a king they can see and touch either. It really did make Israel stand out. And they don't like standing out. They've decided it's time to fit in. And I think if we're honest, all of us know that feeling. In just about every area of our lives, obedience to God will make us stand out. When I was at university, one of my politics professors decided to play a game one day. He stood up and said, Name anything you like. Just shout it out to me one at a time. And whatever you shout out to me, I will prove to you it's related to politics. 
I think the first word that was shouted out was beer. Whoever shouted it out thought they'd got him at the start. But he very confidently went on to talk about import and export duties and trade agreements. And he proved to us that beer was intimately tied to politics. And he never got stumped. Whatever was thrown at him, he proved, at least to his satisfaction, it was all about politics. I think we could adapt that And we could say, name any area of life and we'll find that obedience to God will cause us to stand out in that area of life. Whether it's your relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend, whether it's your behavior online or your behavior at a party, or the way you handle your expenses at work, the way you respond to a dirty joke, the way you parent your children or spend your money or spend your time. We live in a society that by and large takes no account of God. So whatever the question and whatever the situation, if we do take account of God, we're going to stand out. And yet most, if not all of us, are people who love to blend in. Even those of us who are loud and like to attract attention, we still want to be accepted, don't we? We still want people to like us. And we don't like to feel that we're missing out either. Most of the time, it really does look like fun to let lust be king of your life. Or greed. Or your ambition for high position. How many films have you seen where disobeying God is presented as a miserable way of life? No, it's always the other way around. According to Hollywood, the more sin, the more fun. It's naughty, but it's nice. And in the middle of all this, God's people can get weary of being different. We can forget we're the most blessed people on earth. We can forget we belong to the king of the universe. And the king of the universe is our father. We can forget that much of the world lives with a deep sense of unease. How much of their energy goes into drowning out that unease? And yet when we come to Jesus, we can say, it is well with my soul. In Christ, we know what it feels like to have peace with God. And yet sometimes we just want to be like everybody else. That's where Israel is at. And God tells Samuel to go and give Israel a dose of reality. The key word in the section I'm about to read is the word take. 
From where Israel's standing, the grass in the other nations looks much greener. Their kings look cool. But through Samuel, God says, the master you want to serve will bleed you dry. He'll take everything that you have, and then he'll take you too. We'll pick up at verse 9. God says to Samuel, now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys He will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks. And you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. There's an old song called... Rock and roll, I gave you all the best years of my life. It's a song about a man looking back over a long career or an attempted career, and he says, I gave all my best to rock and roll. My time, my energy, my hopes, and I'm left with nothing. Now, I don't imagine many of us are giving our best years to rock and roll. But if we give them to anything other than the living God, we will be left with nothing. Whatever we live for, if it's not God, it will take and take until there's nothing left to take. Now, we know that that's true of the obvious stuff like drugs and alcohol. But it's also true of the less obvious stuff. Living for a career. Living to stay on top of fashions and trends. Living to please other people. It's even true that when we live to serve our own selfishness, if I live like I'm the king, like it's all about me, then one day I will stand before the true king with nothing. Sometimes as God's people, we need a blast of reality. We need reminding that when we wish We were just like everybody else. We are wishing for destruction. 
no matter how fun or sexy or fulfilling it might look, life outside God's kingdom is a straight path to destruction. If we're not living to serve God the king, we're serving another king. And every other king will bleed us dry and leave us with nothing. Look at verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town." Verse 22 is one of the most tragic verses in the whole book. God says to Samuel, give them what they want. And so in chapter 9, Israel will get a king. And God will choose him, but he will not be God's king. He will be the king Israel has asked for. He will be a king such as all the other nations have. God will give Israel a king called Saul. And Saul will lead Israel into misery. I would guess in a group of this size that some of us this morning are being attracted to greener looking grass. Maybe it's just a general feeling. Maybe you're just weary of picking up your cross every day and following Jesus. But maybe it's something specific. Maybe one of you is considering having an affair. Maybe you're really considering some dishonest deal you think will set you up financially. Whatever it is, it looks like pretty green grass. But please, stop. Let God's word stop you. Stop and consider what a privilege it is to have peace with God. Don't walk away from that. And if you're living a depressed Christian life because it looks like much more fun outside the kingdom, if that's how you're feeling, then remember who you are. You're a child of the king. Jesus is your savior and brother. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of your inheritance. And the Father says to you, everything I have is yours. Don't be ashamed to be different from everyone else. It is our amazing privilege to be different. 
If you're a Christian, you are living on the greenest grass there is. We're going to respond to what we've heard from God's word and we're going to give our response by singing King of Kings, Majesty, and then there is a higher throne.